Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 54 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on Tuesday the 30th of July after an amazing weekend in Edinburgh at the 50 Books Publishing Conference. I am still slightly broken from all of the socialising and incredible information, the presentations um, and the, the long days, so I'm not going to talk about the conference today. I really need to let all of the um, information, everything that I learned, my impressions, just to let it all settle. And I've got so many notes to go through and then I will chat about it more in the next episode. And I will try to convey some of my thoughts and tips that I gained from the conference and certainly the mindset shift that I feel I have really undergone over the weekend. But just suffice to say today that I am so grateful and happy that I went. Also, if we met on the weekend, or if you're a podcast listener and you came up and introduced yourself and let me know that you listened to the show, I really just want to say thank you so much for doing that. It was lovely to meet you. Um, I'm not going to list people um, because I will simply lie awake at night fretting that I left somebody out. So please know that if you did come and introduce yourself, thank you so, so much. Also, a really quick shout out to fellow authors and nervous introverts, Cloda Murphy and Hannah Ellis. Thank you for being my crew and looking after me all weekend. You are the best. As I say, um, I'm feeling really, really happy, but also pretty exhausted. Also, I have a visual migraine, which I need to treat with a lie down in a dark room. So I'm just going to keep today's intro quite short. But there is an interview today. Uh, It's with Paul Tudor Owen, who is a debut author with a literary crime novel, uh, which came out um, earlier this year with a small press here in the UK. Uh, We chat about the sort of long and twisty, difficult path to publication, uh, dealing with rejection and the difficulty of sort of keeping going, um, as well as many other things, including writing alongside a full-time job. Uh, Paul uh, works for The Guardian, and so his day was obviously filled with, with words and with writing and with deadlines, and then how he kind of fitted writing his novel into that. I do also want to acknowledge that I went to the RNA, which is the Romantic Novelists Association conference, uh, their annual conference, which was in Lancaster. And I went to that a couple of weekends ago. So it has been a very uh, busy and uh, tricky month for somebody as anxious and introverted as me. But I was very, very grateful to be invited by the RNA. Uh, They invited me to do a talk all about overcoming fear and self-doubt and procrastination. So I was absolutely on brand in that I was utterly terrified to do the talk. Uh, I did lots of preparation and I practiced it a lot and I, I made sure that I gave myself every chance of it going well, but I was still so, so scared. Um, 
And then it went really well. I managed to do it and I'm so, so proud of myself for that. But also I genuinely felt that it went quite well. And, you know, long-time listeners who know how hard on myself I am uh, will know that that's a big deal for me to say. It did go well. And I had... um I had quite a few folk come up to me after to say thank you or that it had connected with them, that they empathised, that it had been useful and that just felt amazing. I really felt as if I was in this warm room of kindred spirits. So massive, massive thanks to you uh, for all the people that came to the talk, uh, to the RNA of course for inviting me and also to all the people that did take the time to then come up afterwards and let me know that they had enjoyed it or found it useful. Thank you so much. It really does mean the world to me. It was truly sort of life-affirming and it also reaffirmed my reasons for doing this podcast. I had been flagging quite a bit, worrying that I'm just repeating myself, that I'm being boring, that I'm not really helping anybody. And so again, at the RNA, I, I got to meet some people who listened to the show. And again, I'm not going to single people out because I will worry if I've missed somebody. But again, a blanket thank you. If you came up and uh, spoke to me, let me know that you enjoyed the talk or that you listened to the show. Thank you so, so much for doing that. I, I just can't convey to you what a difference it has made to me personally and with regards to this uh, to this podcast. On that note, I also, of course, want to thank all my patron supporters over on Patreon. It is incredible to me that people listen, but that they would then uh, value the show enough to support me via Patreon. So you can, of course, sign up for just $1 a month or from $2 a month um, or more, you get the extra audio that I put out in the middle of every month. So I've got some great patron questions that I'm going to be answering in the next show, which will be up in the middle of August. So huge thanks again to everyone supporting me on Patreon, but also to new patron Katie Wells. Hi Katie and thank you so much. So if you are interested, you can go to patreon.com forward slash worried writer and you can support me for as little or as much as you like and for as long or as short a time as you like. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash worried writer. Now, of course, there is absolutely no pressure whatsoever to support this show financially. It will always be free and I am so grateful to you just being here and listening. Also, I really, really appreciate all of the sharing, rating, uh, subscribing, uh, reviewing the podcast. It really helps me to reach new listeners and it helps to keep the show going. And honestly, it is just super encouraging to me. So thank you so much. At this point, I usually do a wee shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter, but a combination of this uh, migraine and the really annoying new Twitter redesign means that I'm going to skip it this month. So I'm sorry about that, uh, but needless to say, I'm hugely grateful. And now, onto the interview section of the show. My guest today is Guardian journalist and debut author Paul Tudor Owen. Paul's first novel, The Weighing of the Heart, is literary crime fiction and was released in March 2019 by Obliterati Press. Welcome to the show, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, just to get started, I was hoping that you could tell us a wee bit about your debut novel. Um, did you always intend to write literary crime fiction? And am I describing it correctly? <laughs> yes, so the the, um, the novel is uh, set in New York. It's about a young British guy living in New York, and um, he splits up with his girlfriend and moves in as a lodger with two elderly ladies in um, an opulent apartment on the Upper East Side. And there are all these priceless works of art on the walls all over the apartment. And um, he and the young woman who lives next door uh, steal one of the works of art and it's an ancient Egyptian scene, and after the theft, uh, the stress of it begins to work on him, and the imagery of ancient Egypt, the imagery from the picture, starts to come to life around him, and it's not clear, the idea is, it's not clear to the reader whether that's really happening or whether that's that's just in his head. So um, it's literary fiction, and there's a crime at the heart of it. I think that... Um, you know, I, I don't know whether the author is always the right person to say what genre a book is. And I'm quite happy for the reader to um, to make that, that come to that conclusion. Um, and I'm also really aware that people like Margaret Atwood and uh, Ian McEwan always really annoy everybody when they write a book that's blatantly science fiction. And then they claim in every interview that it's not science fiction at all. So what I'd say is um, any readers of crime fiction, please read it. I think you'll enjoy it. Readers of literary fiction, uh, go for it. Um, people who like books about New York, ancient Egypt, um, art, uh, basically the more the merrier. Mm, absolutely. Well, as you say, the genres are, they're kind of um, labels so that people know where to put things in the on the bookshelf and in the store, aren't they? They're a marketing construct and convenience um uh, so yeah that's and as you say I've definitely heard that people being up in arms when uh, Margaret Atwood says you know (laughs) you know it's not dystopia or it's not science fiction you're like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh but congratulations on becoming a published author so um that's great oh thank you thanks very much and it's um it's a long and twisty path for most of us so I would love to hear your kind of path to publication story yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's definitely taken a while for me. Um, I think I first started trying to write fiction when I was in my um, my early 20s, and I managed to get an agent um, at that time, and I finished a, um, a book, and he sent it out, and no publishers were interested. Um and then I was sort of going back and forth and I was working on other ideas. And um, eventually, uh, around about sort of 2011, I started writing this current book. And I think once I'd written the first couple of chapters, I just really felt like, you know, that, that, that this is, I felt very confident, really, that what I was writing now was much better than anything that I'd written before. And so I went back to the agent with what I'd I'd written but sort of by this time you know he'd taken the other book to publishers and they hadn't been interested and um I think he'd sort of lost interest really so I kind of was faced with a choice you know um you're usually told as a as an author especially um 
when you're starting out you really need an agent and if you if you have one you know do do everything you can to keep them um and i'm you know i think in, there's a lot of truth to that um however i just felt like this this was not going to result in this book getting published so i sort of um cut ties with him very amicably and i set about sort of starting to tr- try to find another agent and it was such a different process by that time because i think when i when i was in my early 20s trying to find an agent i'd i'd been posting things out you know i'd have been printing out page after page stapling these bundles together taking them to the post office is just so time consuming and i remember when the the night when i was trying to find another agent i just basically after work i went to a secluded spot and i got the writers and artists yearbook and i just started going through from a and emailing it to everybody and i think that evening i got to i got about halfway through the alphabet and um and there was a lot of interest there was a lot of interest quite quickly so that was that was really great that felt very heartening and then so i guess for the next couple of years i was kind of working with a really great agent maggie hambury who i'm still working with now but when she came to to send it out again we didn't have much luck with publishers and one of the reasons was that um at the time Another book about uh, art theft in New York had just come out, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, and it was a massive hit. It was everywhere. And a lot of these publishers were saying, well, we really like your book, but it's just too similar to The Goldfinch. And so once again, the sort of um, uh, the kind of momentum really slowed at that point and we were talking to one. Um, we were talking to one small publisher at this time, but uh, around this, t- this time, I got a job in New York. I worked for the Guardian newspaper, and um, I got a job in their office in New York. And so, at the time I was moving there, which was like March 2015, I was talking to this this small publisher, and she really didn't like the ending. And you know, not not to give anything away, but um, she felt that the ending should should conclude in a sort of what I felt was quite a heavy-handed manner, and so we went back and forth over this. And I don't know if you you've you've found this, but sometimes when somebody points out a problem and you you set about well, f- first of all, you try to figure out whether you agree that it's a problem. Often it turns up something that even if you didn't agree with the original problem, it turns up some issue that you agree that that does need to be solved. So while I was in discussion with this um, this publisher, I kind of came up with an alternative ending and I, and I actually really preferred the alternative ending and I thought it was, it was, it was much better. But by this time, the, this publisher had lost interest. So, <laughs> And I and I just moved to New York and started a new job. And I think, really, then for the next year, um, I didn't do anything on it. And you know, life was just too busy and too complicated. And it was only really about a year after moving to New York that I sort of came back to it. And I spoke to my agents, and they said that they didn't feel that they could continue to send it out because they'd sent it out to a few. 
publishers already. And I just said to them, okay, I'm just going to send it out to small publishers. And so, um, again, I went through the Writers and Artists Yearbook and also the one in in the US, which is, is called something like the Writers Market. And I just started at the beginning and started sending out the chapters to to all of them, really, all the small publishers. And the response was really good. And I think that, um, you know, I think that writers who are sitting at home waiting for agents to get back to them and thinking that they need to have an agent in order to go to that further step towards publication. I think it's true if you were, if you want to get published by HarperCollins or if you want to get published by Penguin or Faber, like it probably is true. But to be published by a small publisher, I don't think it is necessarily true. And um, two or three were interested and we talked to them and uh, in the end, I went with uh, Obliterati, who are um, a, a brilliant small publisher. They, they set up a couple of years ago. Um, the whole purpose is to get books that they think are brilliant, that have not had a chance elsewhere, out, out to the public. It's two guys running it. Um, I really respect what they're doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's been a really great process. So... That was about, um, I guess that was about a year and a half ago or a year ago when I signed with them. And around the same time, my wife and I were talking about whether to stay in New York or come come back here. And we decided to come back. So it was really an exciting time, actually, because we were coming back and I knew that the book was going to come out when we got back to Britain. And, um, you know, it felt like I was finally going to achieve this ambition this and, and 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 do something that I wanted to do for so long no absolutely well thank you so much for sharing that because um as I said at the beginning you know it's most of us have got this sort of twisty path filled with close but no cigar and rejection and things but I'm always so grateful when um other authors are willing to share it because it's so important that everyone knows that that's just normal that is right, absolutely totally. the usual experience because when you're going through it it's I mean again you have that tenacity you know you kept on going you might have a wee break at times because of life or you get a bit too kind of ground down with it but you come back and you try again and is there anything that you wish that you could have that you could go back and tell yourself because obviously you did keep going so well done but (laughs) is there anything that you would any advice you would give out to other people in the same situation or, or anything you wish you could have known um this is a sort of impossible one, but it would have really it would have really helped me a lot to know that in the end I was going to get there. Because I think, you know, there's definitely periods where you feel like, God, I'm putting so much into this. I'm putting so much time, so much of my sort of creativity into this. And maybe it's just going nowhere, you know, and um, m- maybe I should really be using that time and effort for something else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there had been a way to let myself know that you will make it, that, that would have that would have meant a lot. Obviously, that's uh, impossible. I mean, advice for other people, you know, it's so it, it, it's so different for each person and each person's sort of set of responsibilities, their job, their family life. So, you know, I, I suppose anything I can say Anyone with kids, for example, would just probably say to me, "You're just being. This is imp- what you're saying is impossible." But what what I found was that um, if you want to do it, 
you have to cut something else out. You have to not do something else in order to do this. Otherwise, you're just not going to get it done. So I think when I when I started off in my 20s, like what, what that meant, I guess, was not going out with my friends or not watching TV in the evening, whatever, just like making time to do this. And I suppose now... It's more that sometimes I'll stay behind after work and work on my book for a couple of hours. Sometimes I'll, um, well, I, quite a lot, I'll, I'll try and spend Saturday and Sunday in the day working. And I think that's, that's it, really. You, you just have to carve out that time. And, and, and it's, not, it's not easy, you know. Mm, yeah, I'm very impressed that you sometimes work um, on your writing at the end of a working day, because when I was in journalism, I I wanted to write fiction desperately, but I know that I was, I felt very, um, as if I'd sort of used up the word part of my brain by the end of the day. So I'm very impressed that you managed to do that. I think I, I, think I didn't really feel like that. I think that I more felt like when I'm, when I'm working, when I'm in, in the office, I'm in a very productive state of mind and also Mm -hmm. the kinds of deadlines that we're working to there's a lot of pressure to to um uh work very quickly and so i always found that it really paid off to just go straight still in that mindset go and sit somewhere else with a laptop keep working rather than um if i would come home have something to eat maybe like some chores around the house immediately present themselves before you know it it's sort of eight o'clock and you're very tired and then I just cannot recapture that um that mindset really yeah that makes a lot of sense and I'm going to be fair to myself and also say that I was bringing up two small children at the same time so that'll be it as well (laughs) oh well it took took me a wee while but um I wanted to say about the journalism as well so was nonfiction kind of like your first love or did you always want to write fiction? No, I always wanted to write fiction. And I think um, I remember actually having a chat with um, uh, one of my um, lecturers at university when I was just about to graduate and talking about this. And it was really clear to me, you know, that uh, it would be very, very difficult to make a living from writing fiction and so I was thinking about what um what I could do instead that would that would satisfy some of the same sort of creative impulses and in the end they're not that similar in in some ways I mean for me anyway I working in news our main task is really to get information across to people as quickly and as clearly as possible and I think writing fiction you're doing numerous things at once you're building the characters you're um working on the architecture of the plot uh maybe you're doing something interesting with the structure you've got to think about the dialogue um you've got to do all those things simultaneously and you know sometimes what you, you don't want to get information across clearly and quickly to a to a reader sometimes you want to do the exact opposite you want to withhold information from a reader and have them gradually realize it or only realize it at the end um and I think in some forms of journalism, like um, creative nonfiction, as they call it in the US, or like long form magazine journalism, I think in, the, in those forms of journalism, people are using some of those similar techniques. But for me, news reporting and news editing, which is what I've done as a career, is it, quite different in, in those ways mm-hmm. 
to writing fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And so were there any sort of resources or, you know, books or courses or anything that you used to sort of help you study writing fiction and help you transition from nonfiction? Haven't done any formal creative writing courses. I mean, I do remember even sort of as far back as doing my A-level English that I was always thinking about how these authors were doing, were creating the effects that they were creating, why they were choosing to do it that way. And I feel like looking back, I was trying to, to teach myself essentially. And it was the same at university where I was studying American literature and American history and so you can see the influence of some of the books that I studied at A-level on this book, like The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Shiguru, one of my favorite books, uh, has an amazing, unreliable narrator. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely doing some of the same things in, in The Weighing of the Heart. And then, and then The Great Gatsby we also studied. And I think that um, I'm sort of looking at the same idea of um, the corroded American dream as um, Fitzgerald did in The Great Gatsby, and and I deliberately put in some sort of um, nods to The Great Gatsby in the in in the text because um, I thought it was it was pretty obvious how influenced I was, and I just wanted to make sure that the reader knew I wasn't trying to like pull the wool over their eyes. It's always, You're like, I know, it's, I know, I know yeah, I'm influenced exactly. by it. Look, <laughs> look. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I um, have been in writing groups where you read to each other and give feedback, and I've, I've found that very useful. And the most recent one actually was when I was in New York, and I hadn't, as I was saying, hadn't, hadn't uh, written anything for about a year, and then I really wanted to get back into it, and I wanted to start a new book. And I joined this um, group run by an organisation called Gotham Writers, and the the class was was fairly simple. It was basically you. There were about 15 of you, 10 or 15, and the um, facilitator um, comes up with a word or a phrase, and you have 10 or 15 minutes to write basically whatever you like on that subject or based around that subject. And it was just exactly what I needed, really, because it just forced me to write, and it kind of sparked off creative ideas. And I really enjoyed, actually, there was such a variety of of um of work from from all the other people and then um, one really stuck in my mind where um I think yeah the subject was um lemon or lemons and like at these classes a lot of stuff that people read is sort of blatantly autobiographical and <laughs> so this one just really came out of the blue and so the guy said um that uh his story was that uh, his narrator was on a date and he kissed this girl and her lips tasted of lemons and it was really disturbing because it reminded him of when he was a baby and his grandma leaned over him when he was in his crib and she was um, sucking on a lemon cough sweet and it fell out of her mouth and it fell into his mouth as a, as a baby and so he found this so disturbing so he left the date and as he walked home a truck hit him and killed him and the truck was full of lemons and all the lemons <laughs> it was just brilliant i mean look, it's just a, a um, jaw-dropping story so it was really great like hearing everybody else's stories as well and and talking to them and they gave you a glass of wine and um, a bite to eat like the whole thing is a total bargain actually <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was really 
Good. That sounds good. And so now that you're not in a writing group, which feeds you wine, um, <laughs> what what's your kind of um, sort of routine or process now? Do you aim for a particular word count per day or writing session? And do you sort of plot books in advance? Or is it too soon to say since? Um, I, um, I work shift work, so I often have to work at the weekends. And what that means is that then I have a day off in lieu in the week. And that's actually pretty good for me, really. So, um, for example, today I had I had a day off and I um, used it for quite a, a, a bit of writing. So what I try to do is get get as much, get as many of other chores, responsibilities and tasks and things out of the way so that I have a, um, a, as long a block of, of time to write as possible because I just find that um, you really need uh, the more you can immerse yourself in that world, the more new ideas will will spark off. And I usually work in the in the kitchen and try to have as much natural light as as um, as possible. But one thing that um, has really uh, changed my life recently as a as a writer is, you know, on your phone you can get it to um, to read out uh, anything that's that's on the screen mm-hmm. and so what I do is when I've been working on a chapter and I feel like it's in quite good shape and then I'm going somewhere else going to, going to, to do something then I um, put it on my headphones and have the um, have the phone read it back to me mm. and it's really brilliant because it really puts that kind of distance between you and and the writing so that you are able to appreciate it as um uh as a as a reader rather than as the writer um so today for example uh I was doing some work and then I had to paint the bathroom floor so I loaded up the chapter that I'd just been working on onto my phone and I just listened to it as I was as I was painting, and you um, you really sort of come to view it as hopefully as as the reader was. But I just I was going to um, uh, I was going to play you a bit if 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 that's all right, so you can you can hear what it sounds like because people do think it's kind of ridiculous when they hear what it sounds like. But anyway, it works for me. I'll, I'll play you a bit. The weighing of the heart, Paul Tudor Owen, Chapter One. Sooner or later. Everybody comes to New York, and I was no exception. For me, it was art school that brought me over, and I left behind the brash primary colors of late 90s London gladly and without remorse. So, I mean, (laughs) you can see that it's, they haven't quite, you know, mastered human voice yet, but I think they're they're getting there, and perhaps, like, for me, part of the, the way it's kind of stilted and everything is actually quite good because it's so clearly not my voice or my mind that I can almost see it as um as another read as a and reader. of course it's going to read exactly what is there as well so I think from a, a self-editing point of view it's going to be useful even if it's just picking up uh, repeated words or that kind of thing because, oh yes totally because you know your own when you're reading your own stuff you you read ex- what you expect to see don't you yeah. yeah. Oh, excellent. That's a really interesting tip. I've not heard that one before. So well done. That's a first. <laughs> so in terms of, um, this is The Worried Writer, so I'm afraid I will, you know, <laughs> delve into any struggles that you've ever had. So do you ever kind of suffer from a creative block? I think one one thing that I, I do find that that's good from journalism is that if I, 
I find it, I can usually get from A to B in writing, even if I'm sort of stuck on how to do it or, uh, you know, uh, not doing it in a particularly beautiful or elegant way, but I can just get from A to B and then move on and come back and improve it later. And I think that probably comes from the sort of pressures of journalism and just having to do it. So that's really good. But I am very easily distracted. And I think, you know, it's not always great being trying to work at home. I think that, you know, I'm often uh, going water the plants or like tidy something up or sort my books out or, or whatever. And there's that cliche, isn't there, about um, writers homes that are very tidy because the writer who claimed that they were spending the day writing has actually been sort of pottering about tidying everything up. <laughs> I can't possibly comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was when I was in New York we only had a very small flat and so you know it, it would have been pretty antisocial of me to try and take up all the space writing and our office was we we had space in this um I don't know if you know this um, uh, corporation called WeWork, which is this co-working office space company. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically you you sign up and you can then go to any of the WeWork offices around the city or around the country, whatever you've signed up for. And the Guardian's office was in a WeWork office. And what it meant was that if I booked rooms, I could book rooms in, in other WeWork offices around the city. So what I would do was go to a different one each time, like on a Sunday, say, book a room in a, in a WeWork and, and then go. And, and it was great, actually, because I really got to explore the city and uh, work in lots of different places. And, uh, you know, the books, the books set in New York and the new book that I'm, I'm working on now is also set in New York. So it was great to feel immersed in New York and to be seeing the sights of New York out of the window as I was working. Mm, that sounds perfect. And um, in terms of kind of the experience of being a debut novelist, because obviously, as we were saying, in the sort of path to publication, it takes an awful lot of grit and you have to really want it and you work and you get rejected and it's the dream and then it finally happens. Um, has it been all you hoped for or have there been any sort of unexpected stresses or has it just been joy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been brilliant in the sense that this is something that I've wanted for so long and I felt so great to have achieved this ambition. The book launch, for example, I just felt really fantastic to be finally presenting myself as an author and, um, you know, people's responses have been so good, like both in terms of people who have read it, who hadn't read it before, have been really, really positive and also just, you know, my friends have been really, really supportive and really happy for me and that that's that's all been absolutely mm, brilliant that's great. Mm -hmm. I mean um you know uh, uh obliterati my publishers are a small publisher and I think that it's probably a different experience for me than it is if you are signed to one of the the big publishing houses you know I think when it comes to marketing and promotion, you know, what, Obliterati are working very hard, but they are a small company. And I think that mm. what one thing that I've found and we've found is that um, it's much more effective for me to do everything personally than for them to do it. They, the results are much better and it feels like the personal touch is, is what's needed, you know, whether that's contacting podcasts like yours or um literary festivals 
newspapers, uh, bloggers, bookstagrammers. It all seems to work better if it comes directly from me. And, uh, you know, one, one example is, um, is bookshops, getting it in bookshops. So I've been, you know, going around. Um, I've been to almost every bookshop in, in central London and uh, persuaded them to stock it. And, you know, it works. Like, it works to, to turn up, to show them the book, to tell them a bit about yourself. It does work. There's only one bookshop that hasn't taken it, which is Hatchards in St Pancras. So, Hatchards, if you're if you're a regular listener to this podcast, <laughs> please please reconsider reconsider your stock. Yeah. <laughs> so you know you feel that's it, great that that worked so good. well. Like you, it, yes, you you feel like a sense of achievement, but it's very time consuming. You know, it, it's it's hand to hand combat to get it stocked everywhere. Mm. And and I'm I'm doing it, but it it's, takes me a while. On top of oh. a job, you know, it, it I does. was going to ask you about the kind of balancing of um, because you're you're definitely not alone, regardless of the size of your publisher, in having to be having to do the lion's share of promotion. Right. Right. And that was something that I was happy to do, and I am still happy to do. But it does have, as exactly as you say, it has a time attached to it. And, yep. and also that can, I don't know, again, I don't know how you feel, but I also had to kind of adjust as happy as I was to be finally like out there as an author. I also kind of had to deal with a wee bit of imposter syndrome and, and sort of self doubt mm. with regards to the marketing um, right. and promotion side. I don't know. Have you struggled with anything there or are you just very confident and happy to go into bookshops <laughs> as it sounds? I, think, I, think that I sort of, having spent three years in New York, I sort of, channeled my inner, uh. inner American and I just thought <laughs> how would an American handle this just go in and say look here's my book it's, it's great put it you on the shelf it. you won't regret <laughs> it um how <laughs> oh, fantastic yes, that's so good <laughs> it is you know one of you, you you it is sort of going against your nature as a British mm. person and I think for example like I'm I'm like tweeting and putting posts on Instagram like every day and I think that my friends are probably getting a bit sick of of seeing it you know but I've just got to do it because if I don't do it nobody is going to do it you know so you know that's it's it's my only choice really mm, it's definitely part of the gig it's yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of kind of um going forward perhaps do you have any strategies in mind for making sure that I mean, you want to do everything you can to make your debut a success, which makes perfect sense. Um, but going forward, do you have any strategies for kind of making sure that promotion and marketing and kind of the business side don't totally take over your writing time? Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally, totally it, really. I think um, the time that I was using for writing, I am now using a lot of it for like 90% of it really for marketing I mean, I think that I have just kind of resigned myself to maybe for this whole year, that's going to be the case. Because when a book comes out, you've only got a, a short window to, to, to really make it, um, to, to, to make it count, really. So I feel like I've just got to this year throw myself into that 100%. And I'm still, you know, I'm still making some time for writing the new one and I'm still trying to keep up with sort of um making notes and and just keeping the idea going in my head but if at the end of the day 
I've spent this year promoting the way of the heart and trying the, trying my best to to make it as successful as it possibly can be. Um, I think now is you know now is the only time that I could do that, and I can come back to to the new book in the future. And the more successful the way in the heart's been, the stronger the new book, the stronger a position the new book will be in once it finally gets to that stage. Uh-huh. And are you um, so that with the new book is that was it a, a one book deal with Obliterati Press or would you be you know submitting your new book when the time comes or? Uh, it's a one book. It's a one book deal, and they get first refusal on the next yes. one. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So I was going to say what's next from you, but I'm assuming it's this second, um, mm. also New York set book. Yeah, that's right. So the, the next one, it's um, it is still set in New York, but it's going to be set in the 1970s when New York was a sort of crime plagued hellhole, mm. and I think that um, that was the kind of New York. It's strange to sound. It's still strange to say that I first fell in love with through films like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, and New York felt so exciting, but also so gritty. And um, I really wanted to sort of, uh, you know, um, I really wanted to sort of conjure up that that New York in, in my writing. So it's it's sort of a, it's set in in the mid seventies, and it's about a. Um, sort of failing newspaper journalist uh, in New York who it starts looking into conspiracy theories about the moon landings and he starts meeting these conspiracy theorists who believe the moon landings were faked. And as he gets drawn into uh, deeper into their world, he sort of finds himself against his better judgment, starting to believe some of their paranoia. So, that's the that's the basic premise. Mm, excellent. So, um, just to finish up, where can listeners find out more about you and your books online? Sure. Well, if you um, if you go to uh, the Obliterati website, which is Obliterati, uh, I'll, I'll spell it out. Actually, it's O B L I T E R A T I Press dot com slash books. You'll see all about the book and the other books that they publish, or you can find it on Amazon, uh, The Weighing of the Heart by Paul Tudor Owen, or The Foils website, or Waterstones. Um, and my own my own website uh, is uh, Paul dash tudor dash owen dot tumblr dot com well i will put all the links in the show notes and i'll also pop your um instagram link in there as well but yeah thank you so much for your time it has been a lovely to speak to you no it's been fantastic thank you very much for having me on thanks for listening today for show notes and links head to worriedwriter.com if you'd like to connect find me on twitter Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag WorriedWriter. See you next time.